Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by podcaster Cherie Burton, who is the host of Women Seeking Wholeness. On her podcast, Cherie brings in expert guests for intelligent and engaging conversations about the sacred feminine, emotional healing, mothering, authentic spirituality, natural health, self-nourishment, and much, much more. And I'd highly recommend people listen in and we'll include a link in our show notes. But today, it's our delight to have Cherie here on Breaking Down Patriarchy so she can talk to us about a topic that we haven't addressed very much on our podcast so far, and that's the topic of anger. Cherie will teach us about sacred rage, the anger of ancestresses, and how we can harness the indignant energy that patriarchy brings to a boil inside of us. So we'll get to yelling into pillows and angry dancing later in the episode. But before we begin, I'm going to read a quick bio. Cherie Burton is a mom of six, an author, a holistic health business owner, Women Seeking Wholeness podcast host, and hobbyist divine feminine scholar. She has worked as a clinical counselor in the fields of mental health and addiction, and now specializes in the science and spirituality of emotional healing and sensory integration, which is a whole soul approach. Cherie is a former Mrs. Utah and guides women in her Stand, Speak, Shine private coaching programs, retreats, and online school. She travels internationally, empowering audiences with knowledge and tools to heal their trauma, find their soul callings, and embrace their wholeness. Hello there, I am Cherie Burton. And I go by she, her, hers pronouns. I'm a mom, writer, business owner, a podcaster for women seeking wholeness. And I consider myself kind of a hobbyist divine feminine scholar. Lately, it's felt like it's just time to speak more openly and boldly about the deep pain I've experienced as I've tried to wade through outer masculine structures, the quote unquote traditions of the fathers, if you will, just to get to my own inner peace and power as a feminine being. I've been fascinated with discovering the history, the her story that has been sidelined and put out of circulation from the mainstream, most notably in religious settings. The true story of the goddess, the priestess, the feminine consort of Christ, Mary Magdalene, all this juicy history is making a comeback, and it moves me in ways almost nothing else does. What I really wanted to talk to you about in this episode is the term sacred rage. Many of us are feeling a strong sense of anger and indignation at what has been repressed, suppressed, and oppressed throughout the ages with respect to the feminine. Oftentimes we judge this anger. And I'm here to tell you that this anger is not only healthy, it's probably the main impetus needed to create the shift we all desire. Do not bypass this anger. It is well-founded. It is 100% justified and you have every right to feel it. Many of you may have heard of the term righteous indignation. It's often used in reference to the biblical incident in the New Testament where Jesus flipped over the tables of those money changers in front of the temple. He boldly chastised these money changers, driving them out saying, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. This was a demonstration of sacred rage. Righteous indignation and sacred rage 
are terms that can be used interchangeably in that they both portray bold human anger that confronts what is blatantly spiritually offensive. It's not just reactive anger. It's proactive anger. We have to do something with it. So I'm calling it sacred rage for our purposes here because of the searing intensity that ensues when we awaken to how the sidelining of the feminine has bumped up against our deepest core values. I sometimes want to scream out, make not my mother's house a house of merchandise either, because this is what's been happening right in front of our eyes, right inside our churches. I will share with you some of my pain and anguish, and I share it with the intention to heal and open up conversations for greater healing and understanding, not just to kind of perpetuate a free-for-all anger fest. My pain is real, and yours is too. If you can identify with any part of my struggle, if it helps to validate your own pain and questioning, then I will have accomplished the true intention of this sharing. When I interviewed Amy McVie Olibest on my show last year, my podcast show, Women Seeking Wholeness, she used a phrase that has stuck with me. In fact, it's been reverberating in my head for months. She said, we have been complicit in our own subordination. In this context, she and I were kind of discussing the risks of staying silent when we see blatant injustice and the marginalization of our sex, particularly with male church leaders. As I've reflected on this more and more, the risk of staying silent at church, I've come to realize that by not feeling safe to articulate what's bothering me, what doesn't sit right with me, what feels off to me, I don't just become complicit to the furtherance of unhealthy aspects of my culture, I become subordinate to the constraints of my own subconscious mind. When this happens to me and to you, when we stay silent, we begin to feel trapped, confused, and powerless. It's akin to being in a mental prison of some kind. And and sisters, we've been in bondage for far too long. As I continue to make more and more problematic discoveries, like when I hear or read about yet another aspect of history or theology that has denigrated and disempowered women, females, I find myself getting really, really hopping mad. (laughs) I'll start praying and journaling, sometimes sobbing, sometimes clenching my fists to the heavens or pounding them on the earth. Sometimes I scream in a pillow, go outside for a vigorous walk or put intense music on and dance like a crazy lady. Working this trauma energy of this disillusionment and anger through my body really helps. But after I've had my little temper tantrum, I'm still left wanting. I just want to feel into the heart of what's really happening. I find myself asking, like, what are we to them? How are we women actually useful to the patriarchy? What do they want from us? And where is this all going? I know the patriarchy is not an overarching term for men in general. Like Amy frequently says, and I'll back her up here, we love men. We love males. I have three sons and three brothers and a great dad and uncles and a husband. I see patriarchy as a matrix of ideological constructs that have been replicating a virus of false power. I'm going to repeat that. I see patriarchy as a matrix of ideological constructs that have been replicating a virus of false power. When you become awake to how these ideologies have infiltrated literally everywhere, you can't go back to sleep. It's not uncommon to go through intense stages of grief and inner chaos as you begin to unplug from this matrix, from these old dogmas and philosophies that have subjugated women for millennia. You recognize how you have personally been affected and you feel a myriad of hard, bitter emotions. 
I've had certain loved ones ask me, Sheree, why are you so angry? And I want to say to them, gosh, how much time do you have? It is a loaded explanation, isn't it? My indignation typically makes no sense to anyone not immersed in unearthing actual historical facts. I met Dr. Valerie Rhine, who coined the phrase patriarchy stress disorder or PSD a couple years ago at a feminine leadership event. I later interviewed her on my podcast, and we discussed how releasing trauma from the patriarchy wound or the toxic male wound is the new frontier in psychology and medicine. She shared collective and intergenerational grief is gripping the world. And this collective grief is showing up powerfully in the space of religiosity. Women have inherited the sociocultural and even the epigenetic ancestral pattern of staying silent, being nice, diffusing contention, and overall peacekeeping. Part of staying silent includes the habit of holding in anger. Most women are absolutely furious and have no way to safely express it. And what is this costing us? My background is in psychology and my career has focused on the holistic mind-body approach to emotional homeostasis and nervous system regulation. When anger gets bottled up, rage, unprocessed trauma, it produces a state of internal combustion. Swallowing words and feelings creates energetic tension and quantum level blockages at the cellular level. Swallowing words and not expressing yourself with authenticity over time can produce a tight throat, constricted speech, a tense neck, and even chronic sore throats or thyroid issues. Bypassing our anger affects our health on all levels, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and socially. I was born and raised inside the construct of Mormonism or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In it, I've privately wrestled to claim my own voice and identity as an empowered female. At church, I've often felt second. I once believed that because Eve came after Adam and because there was so much emphasis on the fall of man, which she instigated, females were fundamentally a second seat creation. I once believed this not because Mormon theology was really heavy-handed or negative towards Eve, but because as a female, you're entrained to second-guess yourself, to outsource your personal power, to put yourself second out of socio-emotional necessity. You learn to put yourself second in this education, this career, this longing, this need, this question. In heavy patriarchal religious administration, in my experience inside Mormonism, women are given a secondary role as auxiliary support to male governance. The priesthood is the understood first seat figurehead, the final and really only authority. Women and the mysterious mother remain second in command, relegated to the less visible roles of silent supporters. Most world religions have traditionally held strict gender roles, and my church of origin is no exception. Look, no one's disputing how beautiful religious practices and gatherings can be, but historically, religions have held really horrific theology for women. Silencing, body shaming, violence, ownership, misogyny, choose your poison— Skewed perceptions of Eve and the critical textual omissions were manipulated and controlled by early church fathers dating back to early Roman rule. It's quite an interesting paradox, the patriarchy injecting into the collective psyche that females are the root cause of the fall from paradise and responsible for the downfall of humanity, when in fact, that's exactly what the patriarchy themselves did to humanity by metaphorically casting the feminine out of the garden of religious equality. The earth has been in a free fall because of this expulsion. 
From the first century, females were deemed completely unworthy to participate in leadership or pray openly, much less be a mouthpiece for the divine. For many centuries, a woman's status was just above that of a slave, and this is still a reality in some parts of the world. I'm not saying this has entirely been my experience inside Mormonism, a skewed perception of Eve or an inability to assert leadership, yet I have experienced a very real second-in-command kind of positioning, as priesthood men have always had to preside over me. Men are granted premier access to God via hierarchical priesthood administration and thus are said to be divinely sanctioned to lead congregations, homes, and the rest of humanity. Research and discoveries in the fields of paleontology, archaeology, and cultural anthropology have made it clear the arts, gifts, voice, power, and ways of the feminine were forced underground by patriarchal regimes. This was a gradual process, but once in place culturally, became a radical exclusion that continues on a global scale to this day. The evidence and research are there, and there continue to be many frontiers to explore with the artifacts, documents, art, and textual findings that have come forward. It's just that church officials aren't really diving in to explore these facts and findings in the way that they deserve. And why? Because these findings centralize the feminine. It is not that women's temples, texts, teachings, and access to power were merely lost. There was a violent concerted effort to bury, burn, and otherwise destroy any evidence that they existed in the first place. At pivotal stages of the earth's development, any text teachings, artifacts, and talismans not denoting a dominant male presence were deemed heretical, paganistic, witchy, cultish, and apocryphal. Yet at one time, the priestess was a real, live, embodied healer and role model, and entire cities were based around the worship of goddesses. Some of the questions that have propelled my exploration and research are, how has religion excised goddess worship and feminine cosmology? How have religious systems been complicit in the oppression and suppression of female contribution? What discoveries have recently been unearthed that reflect a broader view of humanity, spirituality, and feminine power? How did Mother Earth lose her ground? Over the past couple of years, I've had the honor of getting to know a powerfully wise woman in her late 70s, Maureen Murdoch, who is the author of the classic feminist book, The Heroine's Journey, Woman's Quest for Wholeness. I interviewed Maureen on my podcast the month that The Heroine's Journey was celebrating the 30th anniversary of its release. Maureen has written, When humankind forgot the sanctity of the earth and began to worship its gods in churches and temples instead of in groves and on hilltops, it lost the sacred I-thou relationship with nature. With this disregard for the sanctity of nature came the denial of the sanctity of the body. The sacredness of the female body The recognition of sacredness in matter was lost as people began to worship the father gods. The reverence and fertility once accorded a menstruating woman went underground along with the goddess. In her absence, some women forgot the deep wisdom of their female body and the mysteries of feminine sexuality. Women know with their bodies, close quote. I've come to know what Marina is talking about in powerful ways. Yes, we do know with our bodies. We can feel into the innermost recesses of our gut brains, our womb space, our second chakra area, and the intelligent temples of our hearts to access knowledge, insights, intuitions, and sacred knowing. 
This is why embodiment, being present in your body here and now is such a complete game changer for women. When we are in our bodies, we are unstoppable. When we are fully present, grounded, aware, and heart-centered, we access authentic spiritual, mental, and physical power. Using your voice then becomes natural and swallowing your anger is not an option. So here's where it's gotten personal for me. I was nine years old the first time I heard the word polygamy. I'd been eavesdropping on a group of adults having a side conversation before church. It was a peculiar enough word to pique my curiosity. So I later asked my Sunday school teacher what it meant. What she started saying seemed too strange to be real. One man, many wives, prophets used to do it. Heavenly Father does it. Mormons believe in it. The full explanation she gave me is hazy now, but I remember with lightning bolt precision how it struck in my body. It was as though someone hauled off and kicked me square in the center of my midsection. I wouldn't know this until years and years later, but that quantum level kick left a gaping hole in the middle of my being for decades. I don't know what disturbed me more as a nine-year-old, the fact that it seemed like common knowledge and no big deal to my female teacher, or that it seemed like common knowledge and no big deal to God and the leaders of the church. I formed an innocent interpretation in an instant that it takes a number of females to equal or complete the worth and power of one male. And I remember asking like one dad with lots of moms, one husband with lots of wives, one heavenly father with lots of heavenly mothers. The concept of heavenly parents is a unique doctrine that prevails in Mormonism. The belief that we lived as spirit children and were raised with perfect love and glorious realm by exalted parents. To that point, I just assumed, because of my heteronormative culture, that my heavenly parents consisted of a mother and a father, not one father and a collection of mothers. How such an eternal doctrine impacts the developing psyche of a Latter-day Saint female, I have come to learn, can be emotionally traumatizing. Maybe for some, that's a strong assumption or inference or stretch, but for me, it was a spiritual shock a gut punch to the epicenter of my being. Mormon women are stuck in the afterlife, trying to navigate a patriarchal order wherein their husband can be sealed to multiple women and create children with them. Yet you as a woman can only be sealed to one man and that man has eternal claim upon your children and you will be silent for all eternity behind him. As I've grappled with this, I've come to see that it's a spiritually cruel concept and afterlife for Mormon women, and one that has created a lot of psychological angst for both genders. At various times throughout my life, I would scramble to grasp the goal and end game of the practice of polygamy. Joseph Smith, the founding prophet of Mormonism, had dozens of wives, some in their teens, others who were married to other men. Brigham Young, the faith's second prophet, had more than 50 wives. In Doctrine and Covenants section 132 of the Latter-day Saint canonized scripture, it introduces polygamy as an eternal principle, a celestial law called the New and Everlasting Covenant. This is a hidden doctrine and one that's not really openly discussed in Sunday meetings or from any pulpit, but it's definitely still there. It's definitely still on the table. And I could never ascertain if it was a stain on Mormon history or a wholly pure principle. As a youngster, I settled for the latter because prophets speak for God and therefore they can't be wrong. I decided that if I became spiritual enough and right enough with Heavenly Father, someday he'd give me a personal assurance about polygamy I could live with. 
Someday I would feel peaceful about my eternal destiny as a sister wife and hence peaceful with Doctrine and Covenants 132 in the here and now. Someday my body would feel peaceful about it. The quote, don't worry, you won't have to practice it in eternity if you don't want to, and it's not required of everyone, and God's ways are not our ways, were pseudo-assurances that only compounded my disorientation and guilt. Disorientation, because I didn't know how to place it with the church's emphasis on chastity, fidelity, and monogamy, and guilt, because those women who are super evolved, spiritually intelligent, perfectly obedient, and pure in heart, apparently are not bothered by it now or in the afterlife. These women will be so advanced and mature and self-sacrificing as exalted goddess wives that they will willingly share their God husband with exalted women in the afterlife forever. And they'll be so grateful to do so because they'll be at the elite few who truly grasp the power of it and were worthy enough to live up to the requirements. It will be a divine privilege. This stuff was all too crazy for me to try and climb into or fully understand, and I felt severely lacking in faith in my inability to accept it. So I shelved it somewhere in the recesses of my mind body. I stuffed it away and in the process felt a lingering diminishment in my spiritual worth as a female and more painfully, a diminishment in my ability to maintain strong enough faith. Yet there were too many other beautiful eternal promises to explore, too many other wonderful aspects to my faith to have doubts about this singular, seemingly inconceivable doctrine. Therefore, I figured it was obviously my personal hangup. I will just say that at various times in my life, I've been in absolute agony, suffering, turmoil over the harmful practice of polygamy. I never understood sacred rage until health problems surfaced that practically forced me into confronting how wrestling with these issues was affecting my body. I focused my career on understanding emotional and mental health, teaching for years that 90% of our behavior is driven by the subconscious. I've come to terms with the furiousness and grief and the deep, deep sadness I had been stuffing down and spiritually bypassing in order to stay nice, calm, and faithful. See, I am a seventh generation Mormon woman. I began to feel in very real ways, the tremendous anguish and fiery anger of my ancestresses who were forced into this practice of polygamy. They didn't have a choice or a voice. They didn't have the power to express their anger or to speak up, to say no, to write the rules for their families or design their own lives. I've recognized that women have been stifling and suppressing their anger for thousands of years. And when we dampen and diffuse our anger, we become sick and depressed. After all the arguing and explaining and hashing out of doctrinal points had run their course, I realized that no one ever really asked me how I felt about polygamy. And there's something wrong with that. I finally asked myself, what do I keep being asked to sacrifice by not speaking my anguish aloud, by not getting real with others about this, by not acknowledging this pain that I was feeling in the innermost resources of my soul, and by not speaking up about the deepest feminine wound in the psyche of my religion of origin, Mormonism. I was in acute denial, and I could see that others were as well. To me, it became the elephant in the room. I could no longer hold it in. Looking the other way was no longer tenable. I had to explore my true feelings and what this had done to my body. This from age nine 
was a literal quantum wound in the middle of my being. Clinging to religious doctrines, policies, and practices that just do not feel right, that feel to me to be debasing, even demoralizing, is no longer sustainable for me. I've been compelled to accept many divisive religious ideologies because I've been entrained from my girlhood to follow my leaders, to obey without question what comes from, quote, the top, because it's coming straight from God. Men in religious power are exonerated from providing context and transparency. They don't have to tell us why they espouse, reveal, or change things. They just tell us it's from God. This is the patriarchal matrix Mormon women live in. Male church leaders assuage our doubts, placate us, smile and give us messages that paradoxically inspire hope in us while complicating and befuddling our internal knowing. This kind of benevolence offers a false sense of safety. We're distracted from pursuing our own understanding and honoring our own innate wisdom, which can keep us stuck, vulnerable, infantilized, and helpless. This state of dependency is the opposite of spiritual sovereignty. I once pointedly asked myself, why would the patriarchy not want people to become sovereigns? I began to realize that I may be perceived as an unaccompanied minor if I went outside the prescribed set of doctrines and religious borders. Yet, to me, this is free agency and a healthy self-prescribed permission slip to explore and believe what feels aligned and leave behind what does not. In truth, our conformity means nothing at the level of the soul. To outer structures, conformity is everything. The chronic deference to authority has cost us our soul sovereignty and free agency. It keeps us dependent on exteriors and ultimately costs us our feminine and masculine empowerment. I have come to learn deep inside that the body does not, well, actually cannot lie. The feminine wisdom in each of us, the yin energy, the intuitive force within, speaks to us through sensations in the physical body, pure divine feelings, not to be confused with inflammatory emotions. See, the body is a living receptacle of truth. And from the moment my nine-year-old self heard about polygamy, she simply knew her body and her soul just knew. Today, I simply cannot be part of the propagation of the Mormon doctrine of polygamy or the new and everlasting covenant in Doctrine and Covenants section 132. It decentralizes women in the now and in the afterlife, and that's just not okay. My future higher self and my ancient soul, my divine masculine and divine feminine within, by birthright, cannot integrate healthily in a system that has this doctrine on the table. Jungian psychologist, feminist writer, and one of my heroines, the late Marion Woodman, wrote, quote, The feminine leads us to the sharp edge of experience. There we have to feel our feelings in our bodies. There our secrets become visible in the darkened, unvisited corners of our psyches. Claiming the unswept corners of our psyches leads to compassion for ourselves and for others. Close quote. I'll no longer be living my life feeling second and silenced and insignificant and misunderstood at the level of my fundamental core identity. I'm weary of second guessing my worth, my station, and my authentic mission. I want to commune with the God and goddess of my understanding without abandon, without a go-between or intercessor or priest or leader, just as the feminine mystics throughout the ages have done. I am at a stage in my life where it is a psychological and spiritual imperative 
that I express the authenticity of my sovereign soul. And I know I'm not alone in this longing and knowing. Many men and women are feeling this right now. I recognize that not every woman inside Mormonism or inside traditional religion will experience my same disorientation and pain around women's issues. Some Mormon women, for instance, may listen to me and go, why does this even matter? I'm peaceful. I'm fulfilled. I have all the truths before me. I can claim my husband's priesthood. I have a claim on that power. So what's the big deal? But I ask these women, what about what's inside of you? Can you lay claim on that power? Do you feel empowered to lay claim on that? In 1979, Sonia Johnson was excommunicated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for openly opposing the church's stance on the Equal Rights Amendment. I was 10 years old, but I remember her excommunication very well and the controversy that ensued as a result. Her public response in part to this church disciplinary action to excommunicate her was, quote, patriarchy can exist so long as women are afraid, close quote. I was one who had chronic sore throats, thyroid issues, shaky speech patterns, and tightening in my throat area for years until I realized that I was swallowing my emotions and my truth. I was afraid to use my voice to express my innermost longings, questions, and sacred rage. As I've been allowing myself to get more and more curious about my own internal anger, it's driving me to the center of what I value. The reason sacred rage is so effective as an agent for awakening and change is because it is so powerfully felt. It gets us back in touch with our bodies and moves us as an energy source. Everyone who's ever been a pioneering leader or change maker has had to first become angry about what they want to change or revolutionize. They see the injustice and they act. Words are so powerful. If you want to come along with me, use your voice right now. Repeat after me. I am powerful. It is wonderful to be alive. I am my own. I release all restrictions and I am free to be me. I am free to feel what I feel. There are just a million bajillion different empowerment phrases you can give voice to. Just practice speaking up and speaking out and let yourself feel what you need to feel without judgment and without abandon. It might be messy at first, but it will catalyze and calibrate and you will find your happy medium. See, we're living in a time where women must extricate themselves from the establishments around them in order to define their own relevance, their own brand of leadership, their own voices, missions, paths, purpose and callings. It doesn't mean they can't do this within the establishment. It means they must find it in spite of the establishments. Brene Brown said, quote, you can choose courage or you can choose comfort. You cannot have both, end quote. This is the time of the feminine rising in men and in women. This is the day, our day. It is time to be open honest, and radically compassionate to the plight of humanity and how we've been subjugated by patriarchal regimes. It is time to express our sacred rage. We must form a commitment to stay true to ourselves, our own wisdom, and our own power of choice. Thank you for listening.
We are so thankful to Cherie for joining us and giving language to those feelings of frustration and, yes, rage that patriarchy sometimes sparks in us. I can so relate to that disorientation and pain that Cherie describes as a woman in a religious context. And I hope that for our listeners, regardless of your own faith, your own faith transitions, that you're also able to recognize and then harness the transformative power of righteous anger. For listeners interested in learning more about Cherie's work, you can tune in to her podcast, Women Seeking Wholeness, at ShereeBurton.com. And again, a link will be included on our website and in the show notes for today's episode. And as always, I'd like to thank Sam Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. We're at Be Down Patriarchy on Instagram. And as always, thank you listeners for joining our community, our conversation, and our commitment to change. In our next episode, I'll be sitting down with international chess master Anna Rudolph to discuss the world of competitive chess, including the history of women in the quote-unquote game of kings. We'll be talking about why far too many young girls walk away from the game of chess. We'll talk about accusations of cheating and how women can show up in chess to shift the culture. All of this next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Breaking Down Patriarchy.